Well, good morning. Um, it's a privilege to be able to teach uh, and preach this morning. Uh, I, I appreciate Chris uh, inviting me. Um, and wanted to uh, say a special welcome to my parents. Uh, Johnny and Sherry Keeling are here this morning. And uh, um, my dad was an educator for over 30 years, and that's where I got it. Uh, it's kind of in the genes. So uh, uh, I'm glad they're here this morning. I ran into a couple of my students, uh, Kate and Meredith, this morning. Just a shout out. We got a lot of ground to cover. They say I say that every day in class, so it's just kind of one of those things. Uh, and uh, Chris said, you better take notes. There will be a test afterwards. So sorry. Um, so um, I wanted to start today um, just by kind of re reminding us where we've been uh, and where, where Chris and, uh, and Paul have been teaching. We've been in the book of John. Um, and in order to understand the passage today, you really have to go back and look kind of what's happening before we got to chapter 10 and what's going on today. And so uh, we're going to do that a little bit, but I'd like to begin by us reading the passage that we're going we're gonna to interact with today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30. So if you want to scroll there, uh, open your text. Uh, if you've got a Bible, there's a Bible there in front of you if you want to use it, and we'll put it on the screen as well. But what I would like for us to do is I would like for us to stand together in reverence of reading God's Word. So if you could join me, we're going to stand as, as uh, we read the text. And, uh, and just real quick, I just wanted to, um, this is kind of a neat thing. Um, uh, one of my colleagues pointed out to me uh, at one point why we stand uh, sometimes when we do this. There are traditions, different traditions, uh, different churches do different things, but why would you stand? Like, why do we stand when we sing? Things like that. It goes back to early classical and medieval notions of being in the presence of a king or royalty. When you're in the presence of royalty, the only person sitting is the king. Everybody else stands. So whenever, uh, and this is a tradition that the church took on, especially with the reading of the gospel, because Christ is in the gospel and his words are living and true. We are literally in the presence of Christ when we read his words, right? And so it's, it's completely and totally um, appropriate for us to stand in the presence of our king. So as we read the words uh, this morning, um, please listen and take to heart. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the words uh, that your, uh, your servant John wrote down for us. We thank you for the, the words you spoke uh, so long ago to uh, an audience that, that maybe wanted a different answer than what you gave. So Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us in humility approach your words as needy sheep, that Father, you would speak truth to our hearts and Father, give us the courage and obedience to listen. 
And I pray all of these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So I wanted to start this morning really by, by creating some context here. Because if you remember what, what John and Paul have been preaching last, uh, back through the fall, we, we've been looking at these feasts and festivals in the book of John. And it's been wonderful to do this for me personally because I've learned a lot about, um, about Christianity by, by understanding Judaism. I mean, the, the first Christians were Jews, okay? So whenever Jesus did something and he did it in a Jewish context, it makes his message so much more rich if we understand what was going on. So one of the things we talked about back in the fall is we talked about, for example, the Feast of Booths and how Jesus was teaching during the Feast of Booths. And he had some pretty important things to say then. Well, in the same way today, we begin the passage by saying during the Feast of Dedication, Well, it's kind of important to know what the Feast of Dedication is if we're going to understand why he says what he says and why he's getting the questions he's getting. But it's also good for us to remember within the context of this conversation what Jesus has already said. So if we back up and uh, and we look at John chapter 7 where Jesus has left Galilee, he's left Capernaum, he's come down to Jerusalem and he is in the midst of, of what life would have been like in Jerusalem during one of these feasts or festivals, which would have been kind of chaotic. These were feasts and festivals where people came from all over Israel and packed the city. And if you'll remember, the, the, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was this, this massive feast where everybody comes into the city and they literally lived in tents, I guess we could call them, or booths, to kind of remind them what it was like to live in the desert, whenever they had left Egypt and were coming into the promised land and to remind them of their, of their need for someone to take care of them and shepherd them through the, through the desert. And there were a lot of different ceremonies and things that happened during that period. And one of the ceremonies that they did was called the, the, uh, the kind of the, uh, the ceremony of libation. One of the things that the high priest did during the Feast of Tabernacles is they would, they would leave the temple complex and walk down to the Pool of Siloam with a massive pitcher, and they would fill up spring water from the pool, and, and it, there was a parade, and people waved branches, and people sang, and there was musical instruments, and it was, it was, it was pretty wild. And they would come all the way back up to the temple, and then they would take that pitcher and pour it out on the altar. And that was meant to be representative of God pouring out his spirit on his people. So this is going on and it's happening every day of the, of the festival. And, and in John chapter 7, Jesus speaks during this by saying, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here's Jesus speaking into the context of one of these festivals and people are watching what's going on and and out of that he says, hey look, is anybody thirsty? Come to me, I have living water. So that's happening. And then on the other hand, they've got this other tradition that's part of the Feast of Booths where they they light these massive, massive torches inside the temple complex. Um, There are are records that indicate that there were at least four different torches that they, they lit inside the temple complex that were 50 to 75 feet high. They were massive, and then they, they lit these massive, what would have been bonfires on a pole, to light up the temple complex. All of Jerusalem would have been lit by this. And into this, Jesus in John chapter 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So into that context, 
Jesus says, it's dark. You see the light? I'm the light. I am the light of the world. So he's speaking all of these truths about his identity and who he is, and people are listening to him. And, and to make the point even more clear, we also see him, um, we also see him claiming divinity. In John chapter 8, he says, um, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. Which is a pretty clear statement of him saying who he is. That he literally is divine. And then to make another point, during this, this, this feast, this celebration, Jesus heals a man born blind from birth. And just in case you needed another object lesson on light. Here is somebody who not only says, I am the light, but literally can open the eyes of the blind. So, so this has been happening, right? This is what's been going on, all right? And then in chapter 10, Jesus, in his teaching, and by the way, this is the only teaching we have. This happens over a couple of months. We don't know everything Jesus taught. We just know the things that the apostles have written down in the gospel accounts, right? And so we, we have this particular passage here where in chapter 10, Jesus begins to reveal these truths about who he is by talking about shepherds and sheep. And he tells the parable of the good shepherd. And if you look in 10, uh, in verse 7, it says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And if you remember, Paul and Chris have taught us uh, a little bit of uh, a sheep herding terminology here. You know, obviously, we don't all raise sheep these days, but back then they would have understood. Back then, everybody kept their sheep in a pen. Oftentimes, it was a pen that they held the sheep in common. The shepherd could only come in and out through the gate. If you didn't come through the gate, you were a thief or a wild animal. And you came through that door, so the door was a doorway of security. And he literally said, hey, I am the gate. Then he takes it one step further and he says, I'm not only the gate, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd who comes in and takes care of the sheep. Not only do I take care of the sheep, I'm the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he says it again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This is one of those things Chris taught about a couple of weeks ago that was just very, very powerful, that this is a statement of, of power. He says, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I lay my life down. You know, that's a pretty good shepherd to have, right? Who wouldn't want a shepherd that, that, that loved you like that, okay? So, so this is what Jesus has been teaching for months. That gets us to where we start our text today. In our text today, starting in verse 22, it says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So, immediately, what, what should come to your mind right now is, well, Feast of Dedication, what is that? Well, the Feast of Dedication was not a feast that's in the Torah. All these that we studied earlier, that we looked at earlier, the, the Feast of Booths, Rosh Hashanah, Passover, these are all different feasts and festivals that were literally instituted by God. God said, do this. It was very, very prescriptive. He said, this, I want you to do this, and I want you to do it in this way. This is not one of those feasts. This is a very different kind of feast. This was a feast that the Jews themselves developed that marked an episode in their own history. Um, so what we're going to talk about what that is, and it, and it says it's in Jerusalem, it was in winter, because this particular festival happened during the month of Kislev, and Jesus was inside the temple 
walking in the colonnade of Solomon. And what this is, the colonnade of Solomon is a part of the temple complex that's on the east side of the temple. Now that's important for a number of reasons. It's basically kind of a porch area with pillars. So you could be underneath it inside and blocked from the wind. So obviously if it was cool, um, this would be a place that would be a little bit warmer. But there's other special significance for why John maybe pointed out where Jesus was. One of those is that if you are on the east side, you are looking at the entrance to the temple. This is the gate, by the way, this side of the temple. Uh, This is the gate by which Messiah is supposed to come in, right? If you were to go out that gate, you would go down into the Kidron Valley, and on the other side of the gate is the Mount of Olives. That's going to be really important as we continue to study the book of John and we look at the events that come up um, here very soon. So, So there is this connection between the east side of the temple and Messiah. Others have pointed out, you know, why did he point out it was winter? Uh, you know, a, a Jewish audience would have known exactly what the Feast of Dedication was and when it, when it was there. But by pointing out it was winter, it's possible that he was pointing out that this was the spiritual climate of the Jews at that time. We don't know that for a fact, but this idea that it was cold, that, this, that they were in a spiritual winter, possibly. We don't know that for sure, but, but it's a possibility. So this Feast of Dedication, so what's that? You guys actually know what it is because it's something that as Christians you might at least be nominally familiar with. It's the Feast of Hanukkah. So if you've ever, uh, you know, seen Hanukkah feasts or you've seen the, the, uh, the symbols associated with Hanukkah, that's the Feast of Dedication. So the Feast of Hanukkah literally is in the Bible. And, and you know, to really kind of understand what's going on, I want us to talk for a minute about what the Feast of Dedication is. You see, the Feast of Dedication was a celebration of, of Israel's liberation from a Greek empire, okay, that you may not be familiar with, okay? It's kind of a wild story. Uh, and in order to do that, I gotta teach a little history. And that's my wheelhouse. Sorry, can't hide. It took great restraint to not put a timeline up, Chris. I really wanted to, but I, and, and maps. I really want it, but I'm not going to. So, um, so <laughs> thank you. Can I get an amen? Um, so, so here's the deal. Think in your way back machine to when you were in a history class. Remember a guy by the name of Alexander the Great? Kind of important historical character. So, so here's the deal. If you look at the history of Israel, Israel, uh, after the line of King David and Solomon, split between north and south. They were eventually taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians become the Persians. And you can read all of that stuff in, in the book of Daniel and in other books like that throughout the Bible. But, but eventually, the Jews were allowed to come back home. And they, they established uh, um, Israel again. But they were really never truly free again. They were given some degree of autonomy in the way that they worshiped. They were given some degree of, of freedom and, and, and kind of their own rules and stuff like that. But really, they were a part of somebody else's empire. Well, whenever they came back, the Persian Empire is going to be rocked by this guy named Alexander the Great coming out of Greece. And he just absolutely wrecks shop all over the Middle East. He takes over the Persians. He goes all the way into India. The only reason he turns around in India is because his men were freaked out fighting people that were riding elephants. He eventually turns around there, though, and they go down into Egypt. He, he conquers massive amounts of territory, what at that time would have been considered the known world for that, for that part of the world. And then he dies, very young. And so his empire gets divvied up amongst his generals. 
But Alexander had a dream, and his dream was not just conquest. You see, Alexander had uh, an interesting tutor. One of his tutors was a guy by the name of Aristotle. Aristotle, one of the greatest philosophers, you know, in Western civilization, right? So he valued education, and he valued Greek culture, and he literally believed that his uh, mission in life was to spread Greek culture. It's a term we call Hellenization, to Hellenize the world. And that's what the Greeks did. In fact, uh, Alexander did this a lot. He actually had his generals and his men marry into the local culture so as to spread Greek culture more quickly. Uh, He wanted to spread the language. He wanted to spread the learning. And also he wanted to spread the religion of the Greeks. And that's what he does. And this goes everywhere. Well, as you can imagine, probably doesn't go over so well in Israel. Because there's not a whole lot about Greek culture that jives real well with with Jewish culture. Um, Their their attitudes about religion, for instance. The Greeks were polytheistic. Obviously, the the, the Jews believed in one God. Their their attitudes about morality. Their attitudes about uh, modesty in the human body. All these things were were definitely in conflict. And they kind of lived in this tension for a while until this guy comes along. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was, uh, was a really interesting character. He, uh, he came to rule one of these empires that came out of Alexander's empire called the Seleucids. And Antiochus really believed in the Hellenizing mission, and the Jews were a problem. And so what he attempted to do was try to forcefully Hellenize the Jews. Now, by the way, some interesting things about Antiochus. Antiochus took the title Epiphanes. Epiphanes literally means God manifest. That's pretty much you saying God in the flesh. So obviously he had no pride issues. Um, by, the, by the way, this is not necessarily unusual for a lot of these ancient kings to take on titles like this, but it certainly speaks to his attitude about himself and who he was. Um, the Jews actually had a nickname for him. Instead of Epiphanes, they called him Epimames, which means madman. So it's kind of a play on words there. So, but anyway, one of the things that Antiochus did is he forcefully attempted to, uh, to Hellenize the Jews. And I just read a couple of the things that he did. Um, number one, he took bribes from rival Jewish families for control of the office of high priest. So yeah, who was in charge of the priesthood at that time? Yeah, that was basically done through bribery. You know, several times uh, Chris has mentioned that by the time Jesus comes along in the first century, the priesthood was kind of like the mafia. That's not, uh, that's not an exaggeration. It had been that way for over a century by then, okay? So that was going on. He also outlawed many of the kosher laws. He outlawed circumcision, executing mothers and children that were found in violation of the law. He, uh, he basically tried to do away with uh, Sabbath laws and force people to do things on the Sabbath. He outlawed Torah study, so you could not study the Bible. He stole from the temple treasury, and then kind of the, the, uh, the, the climax of, of his activities and the things that really push people over the edge. He literally erected a statue to Zeus inside the temple. And it was, a, it was supposed to be a statue to himself as well. And then they brought in pigs to sacrifice, which of course is an unclean animal, and so they have li- he has literally taken the most offensive thing he could find to go in and try to change the Jews. So this is, this is Antiochus, nice guy, 
okay? So Antiochus is doing this, and as you might expect, um, the Jews don't handle this very well, and you're going to have a rebellion, and the rebellion is going to start in the small town of Modin. Modin is a little bitty town close to Tel Aviv, Israel today, um, and it's going to begin with a priest, a guy by the name of Mattathias. Now, Mattathias was the local priest. He was kind of a, a, a prominent citizen, and into, um, into this, you have a local Seleucid official who comes in, and he basically... Uh, has a pagan altar built, and he tells Mattathias, I want you to, uh, I want you to slaughter an animal on this, on this pagan altar. Mattathias is enraged. He takes a sword out, and, and before you know, things can get worse, uh, a Jewish citizen comes forward and says, no, 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 don't worry about it, I'll do it. And so you've got this Jewish citizen who says, I- I'll do it, Mattathias doesn't have to do it. And so he commences to, to, to sacrifice this animal. Mattathias, even more enraged, takes the sword to this Jewish collaborator and he murders him on the spot. At which point, Mattathias' sons take up arms and they kill the Seleucid official on the spot. And it is on. The sons of Mattathias will wage a guerrilla campaign over the next several years. Mattathias himself will die, but his son, Judas, who is gonna be nicknamed Judas Maccabeus, which means the hammer, is going to basically take the fight to the Seleucids. And for the next three years, that's what happens. Um, and Judas Maccabeus, I, one commentary when I, when I found this engraving said, it's almost like he's got the Heisman pose going on there. So, I mean, this is, this is a, a national hero. This is a national hero to the Jewish people because he fought against them. But here's the thing, it was ugly, it was brutal, and it meant fighting not just Seleucids, it also meant fighting Jews who were collaborating with the Seleucids. So it was a civil war, and it was a lot of family against family, brother against brother, you know, as any civil war would be. It was pretty awful. And if you look at the next slide, Rubens in his painting of uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, shows a little bit maybe more of, of what it might have been like. So, so this is the guy who is basically the source of the Hanukkah celebration. Now you may be going, what? How is that? So, so here's the thing. Eventually, Judas Maccabeus goes into and captures Jerusalem. And in doing so, the first place they go to is the temple, the heart of worship. They cleanse the temple. They throw out the old altarpieces. They build a new altarpiece and they rededicate the temple. And that is what Hanukkah literally means, dedication. This is a rededication of the temple. And one of the things that supposedly happens according to legend is he lights a menorah inside the Holy of Holies. When they light that menorah, they only had enough oil really for one day. They were gonna have to get new kosher oil to to fill the lamps. And it was gonna take time to do that. But it turns out the oil that they had for that one day burned for eight days. And it was a miracle of God. And this was kind of an indication of God's provision. And so to this day on Hanukkah, Jewish families will light a menorah, but it's not the typical seven candle uh, uh, menorah. It's nine candles. You've got four on each side, which stand for the eight days of Hanukkah. And then you've got a candle in the middle. The middle candle is called the servant candle, and it's the one that you use to light it. And you light a different candle on each night of Hanukkah, which happens during the month of Kislev, which for us is December-ish. It's, which is why those, those, those holidays always overlap when we have Christmas, Advent, and Hanukkah. And so what you do as a, as a Jewish family is you light this menorah and you have a celebration over eight days and you put it in your window. And the idea is the light pours out into the street and it pours back into the home and it's meant to represent the light 
of, uh, of, uh, of God and meant to, uh, to kind of uh, also illustrate that, uh, how, how God brought light during this time of darkness in Israel's history. Another game it's kind of associated with, just kind of a side note, you may have heard other things associated with Hanukkah like the dreidel. Um, a dreidel is basically a little spinning top that's got Hebrew letters on it. Um, what's interesting is the legend says, basically, according to some rabbis, is that during the time of the Seleucids, you couldn't study Torah, but when an official came along and you were trying to study the the scriptures, you could hide it quickly and pull out the dreidel and start playing, and they'd just think you were gambling, because basically the dreidel game is a gambling game. And on the different sides of the dreidel are different uh, Hebrew letters that correspond with Hebrew words that literally say a great miracle happened there. And so that's kind of the, the, the connection with that, uh, with uh, the, the dreidel game, which basically children play. And you may have heard there's gift giving during Hanukkah and things like that. Yeah, it's kind of an American thing. Uh, uh, American uh, Jews were kind of competing with Christmas. And so, you know, that's kind of a way to do that. And so cause it's, different, it's, it's celebrated differently in different parts of the world today, okay? That's the Feast of Dedication. So let's get back to that conversation where basically Jesus is standing in Solomon's portico on the east side of the temple through which Messiah would walk. And these guys run up to him and they ask the question, hey, would you um, tell us plainly? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. You gotta see where they're coming from. This is not um, something where you can miss the context on this. This is a people that are still living under foreign oppression. They had traded the Seleucids for somebody else. By the way, the great irony of all of this is Judas Maccabeus, after he captured Jerusalem, he lasted about two or three years before he was assassinated. Then his brother took over and he was assassinated. Then his brother took over and he was assassinated. That the line of kings that follows out of this will last um, a little over 100 years and they all get killed. And it's basically civil war and violence. And that's all you really get until the Romans come in and have their own Roman style of peace, right? And so that's where they are. So when these guys come up to Jesus and they're like, hey, would you just tell us plainly? Are, are you the Messiah or not? Would, would you just be plain? What were they looking for? Do you think they were looking for a hammer? Do you think they were looking for another Judas Maccabeus? I think that's what they were probably looking for, especially because Jesus was so good at looking past people's questions to the heart of the question. And he immediately responds. And, and by the way, I mean, you know, Hanukkah is a time of patriotism. Think about it. This is a time of nationalism. Look what we did. We threw off bondage of this foreign oppressor. Don't you think that's probably what they were thinking maybe Jesus was gonna do? Maybe they had weapons stored someplace. Well, actually, I know that for a fact that a lot of them did. We had whole groups of Jews called zealots who were, were all about assassinating Roman officials and planning rebellions, and that's what's gonna happen in the years after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. So what does he say in response? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I don't think that was the response they were wanting. So the first thing he said there was, I told you. And if you look at what Jesus has been saying for quite some time now, did he tell them? Yes, he told them pretty plainly. 
but it still probably didn't meet their expectations. Then he says, have you paid attention to what I've been doing? Have you paid attention to all the things that I've done? Like, for instance, he hasn't gone in and, I don't know, murdered anybody that was collaborating with the Romans. But what had he done? Well, the book of John talks about the, the seven great signs or seven great miracles that we see. Uh, and and in, the, in the book of John, there, there are seven basic big signs. He turned water into wine to make for a better marriage. Feast. He healed a royal official's son who was in a panic. He healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda who had not walked before. He fed 5,000 hungry souls. He walked on water. He healed a man born blind. And eventually he's going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Have you paid attention to what I've been doing? Now, guys, those are, the only, those are just the miracles that are listed here in the book of John. I mean, if we really want to start looking at, at other places, we can look at all the other miraculous things that Jesus had done, that people had seen with their own eyes. So he's basically saying, look, my works speak who I am. And I don't know what you're looking for, but if anything I've done looked like what you're looking for, probably not, which is why he said, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, looking at that, that's the thing that really kind of caught my heart this week and kind of freaked me out when I started thinking about that kind of question like that, right? How do you know you're his sheep? What's the difference between his sheep and Jesus laying down, hey, you're, you're, you're just not my sheep? Isn't that a scary thought? So I started thinking about, well, what made the people that came to Jesus his sheep? They believed. Obviously, he said that. You listened and you believed. And I started thinking about what are the things that the sheep had in common? What are the things that we look at this passage, when you look at the, the ones that responded to Jesus in a way that showed they were his sheep, what are the things that they all had in common? And the things that I seem to have noted is they all were needy. They all were impoverished. They all came to Jesus with nothing. The people that were not his sheep came with an agenda, came with their talents, came with their preconceived notions about what's next. They came with all that they had. Those were the people that I think he's talking about there. You know, if I were to just go through a list of people that were his sheep... The woman at the well was needy. The woman with an issue of blood was needy. The man lowered through the roof had to have his friends bring him to Jesus. He was so needy. The 5,000 were hungry. The demoniac who had been possessed, he was needy. The royal official, the wedding couple, multiple blind people, lepers, deaf, the mute, those with withered hands, Peter's mother-in-law, Peter when he tried to go surfing on the Sea of Galilee by himself, the disciples, Nicodemus, even Nicodemus came in need. He knew Jesus had something that he needed. Everybody else that came to Jesus that were not his sheep came in arrogance. They came in arrogance because they had something to offer. The more I thought about this, the more I started paying attention to the other things that Jesus said. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, listen to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is needy. 
Jesus is saying, when you come to me, you have to come in humility. You've got to come needing something from me because I don't have, I don't have any need for you. I want you, but I don't need you. So how can we be good, good sheep? Um, when I started thinking about this sheep kind of analogy, I started thinking about um, David, who was a shepherd, who thought a lot about being a shepherd, I'm sure. But you know what? He thought about being a sheep too. And in fact, he wrote 23rd Psalm, which is one of my favorite psalms of all time. It's one we, we taught our children when we were going through a time of, of nightmares at night. It's a good prayer to have. But um, I thought about us reading that together, but I thought instead... I'd have somebody read it for you or recite it for you this morning. And so, uh, so I would like for you to just watch this video real quick of, uh, of, the, of the 23rd Psalm, if you would. Okay. Just Psalm me. 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table after me, before me, <laughs> in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my hands and my cup overflows. Surely God, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the home forever. Okay. Thank you, uh, thank you, Paul, uh, for for getting that footage from Mila this week. Oh my goodness, I could just stop there. So, um, you know, there's a reason Jesus said you've got to become like little children. Children got nothing to offer. I love that image of of, of a child talking about being a sheep that needs a shepherd. You know, everything in that, in, that, in that prayer is about what God does for us, nothing about what we do for God. You know, I think a good contrast as we close out today, I want to share with you somebody that, that, that's a, a firm contrast. What does it mean to be a sheep that comes to, to Christ in need versus somebody who's got it all together? And I think it's the rich young ruler. If you look in the book of Mark, and as he was setting out, this is in chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Here's a guy who came to Jesus who had it all together. The rich young ruler, he was probably good looking. He probably had all the money he needed in his bank account. He didn't need anything. In fact, he had kept the law. I don't need anything. And what does Jesus tell him? I love this. He says to him, you lack one thing. 
Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. His lack was his wealth. Actually, it wasn't his wealth. His lack was his confidence in his wealth. His, 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 his lack was his confidence in his own morality, his own will, his own ability to follow the law. I can do this. And Jesus says, you lack. You are impoverished. And, and he goes away sad because he can't come to grips with the fact that he needed something. So as the worship team comes back up this morning and we have our invitation today, I want you to ask yourself this question. This is really, this is really what I've been thinking about a lot this week. What is the mark? What is the characteristic of Jesus' sheep? I think it's humility. It's coming, coming to Jesus knowing I don't have anything he needs, but he wants me. I'm so glad we sang the song this morning. I am a child of God because he wants you. But as long as you bring your agenda, your ability to follow the law, your ability to, to, to take care of it all, and you don't rely on him for what he has to offer, you're not his sheep. And that's a, that's a hard tension to live in. I know it's a hard thing for us, and it's a struggle. But I want you to think about that, and I want you to pray about that as we have our time of invitation. So if you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for the message um, that I need, that too often um, too often I do think I've got it all together. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that, that trips on that, that God, you, you'd help them to just lay that down and come to you impoverished like a child, like sheep in need of a shepherd. Father, I pray if anybody needs to make a decision to follow you in that way, that you'd give them the courage to do that this morning either right there in their seat as they talk to you or maybe they need to, to, to seek out counsel from somebody from one of their classes or from one of our pastors here. God, God whatever that is, whatever, whatever is going on, I pray that you do business in people's hearts this morning. And I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you would like to talk with somebody about what you've heard this morning, if you would like to pray with somebody, if you'd like to just come down to the altar and pray, this is a time of invitation for you. If you'd like to, um, to join, as Chris says, this dysfunctional family that we call church, and you'd like to talk to somebody about that, there'll be a pastor down here that would love to talk to you about that. So join us in prayer and join us as we sing during this time of invitation.